Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, hello, how are you? Hello, hello. <laughs> Hi, I'm back. Jesus, fuck. <laughs> if that's not how we open this show, I'm going to be so mad. <laughs> choking on my throat coat <laughs> oh my god it's having the opposite effect <laughs> good morning nancy my name is gracie and i'm abby and if you're new to the show welcome and if not well then welcome back the two of us have been friends since forever and mm -hmm. we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you all while drinking a nice cup of coffee or in this case today i'm drinking throat coat because i have allergies <laughs> who doesn't <laughs> where are you i'm gonna find you and just kidding it's, it's i was like where is this going <laughs> <laughs> we're not talking about that right now today we're talking or we'll be discussing the 2005 southern gothic thriller the skeleton key <laughs> it <laughs> pull it together Everyone, Abby <laughs> this I know this movie wowie wow what a ride um but anyway it was directed by Ian Softley and written by Aaron Kruger and the film stars Kate Hudson uh Gina Rowlands Peter Sarsgaard Joy Bryant John Hurt Gerald Prescott and Ronald McCall now, we're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings for this episode can be found in the show notes. Okay, are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary? I sure will. All right, you go. <laughs> go, go ahead and do it. <laughs> Caroline, a New Jersey hospice aide, takes a job as a caretaker for an elderly man named Ben at a former plantation house in Louisiana. Ben's wife, Violet, at first disapproves of Caroline, claiming that she won't understand the house and making a fuss that she isn't black, but eventually agrees to have her stay after her lawyer, Luke, convinces her. Violet tells Caroline that Ben cannot speak or move on his own, but that soon proves to be untrue. Uh, Caroline finds Ben trying to escape the house without his wheelchair, and he croakily asks her for help. Uh, yikes. Violet and Luke don't believe Caroline's claims that Ben is in danger, so she begins to snoop. With Violet's skeleton key, Caroline opens the door to a hidden room in the attic. The room seems to hold all of the answers to Violet and Ben and the dark history of the house. Or so Caroline thinks. Dun dun! Thank you, Abby, for that lovely reading of the plot summary. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, we can do this. Uh, let's talk a bit about the production of this film. Um, so, okay. I got most of this information in from in this section from the Behind the Locked Door documentary feature uh, on the Skeleton Key DVD. Um, I don't actually own a DVD copy of the Skeleton Key. I just found this on YouTube. So I was going to say, wow, you might as well be using a microfiche. So sometime in 2002 or 2003, British director Ian Softley received Aaron Kruger's script from producer Daniel Bobker, saying that he loved it straight away and that it seemed to be an opportunity to make something intelligent and thematically rich, but also really entertaining and gripping. Softly had previously directed mostly dramas, including 1995's Hackers, which is a great film, and 2001's K-Pax, which I haven't seen. The only thing I remember about K-Pax is that Kevin Spacey eats a banana 
whole. Like, peel and all. Uh, I think, <laughs> okay. I, I think he's supposed to be an alien, but like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It was wild. He just eats it like an ear of corn. And I was like, okay. All right. Oh, I think I remember hearing about the banana scene, but that just seems like whatever. Who cares? <laughs> Fuck Kevin Spacey. Anyway. Yes. And oh my God. Seriously. Screenwriter Aaron Kruger wanted to write a screenplay with gothic elements and couldn't get the idea out of his head that what if there was a skeleton key that opened all the doors in a house except one? Kruger stated that essentially that room would be the most interesting room in the house and that he was intrigued as to what could be found behind the door. Discussing the main plot of the film, Kruger stated, you know, all ghost stories are really about a crime in the past that is unavenged and deserves retribution, and that he wanted to explore that in a unique way in this film. When casting the film, all of the actors that Softly and Bob Kerr had in mind were cast. Kate Hudson loved the script and was a huge fan of horror films, while Peter Sarsgaard hoped that he would be able to kiss classic film actress Jenna Rollins. Uh, quote, I figured our characters were lovers, Sarsgaard commented in the making of documentary. She's amazing. One of my all-time idols, unquote. Uh, but no kiss between Sarsgaard and Rollins is in the film, so. Oh, fooey. <laughs> I, I think it's cute that he, he wanted to kiss her. I think it's, I know. it's sweet because it's, you know, it's innocent. Yeah. John Hurt, another classic actor, was cast in the role as Ben the elderly man who just kind of sits and yells for most of the film, uh, <laughs> softly felt that a lesser actor might just use the role as an easy paycheck and wanted to go with an experienced actor who would take it seriously. According to John Weiss in an interview for Sci-Fi with Softly, quote, a lot of people thought it was a bit contrary to hire an actor who's known for, amongst other things, his amazing voice. Uh, and this was what director Ian Softly admits about John Hurt. Quote, mm. but he liked that. He thought it was amusing and he thought it was a challenge for him because it was something he had never done before, unquote. Now, the rest of these fun facts about the film come from IMDb, so please take them with a grain of salt. Not sure if they're real or true or not, but they sounded interesting, so I'm just adding them in here. And there's not a lot about this film on the internet. No, or it really isn't. anywhere in books. I mean, through all my books I have on a horror film and there's nothing about this. So anyway, an IMDb fact, uh, one of them was the swamp behind the Devereux house was created with CGI effects. The actual house used in this film, which was called the Felicity Plantation, is situated inland in St. John in St. James Parish, and it's surrounded by farmland. The fictional Devereux House was situated in Terraboone Parish, um, or Terrebonne, I think it's Terraboone Parish, mm -hmm. which is coastal and swampy. Another fact, Sir John Hurt offered a, to perform the stunt of Ben falling off the roof, but he was not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> as the stunt was ruled too dangerous to guarantee no injury. <laughs> Which, thank God, yeah, he was I old know. man, you know? Like, don't do that. He's like, just let me do it. <laughs> no, John. <laughs> no. <laughs> and at the opening of this movie, the book that Caroline is reading to the hospice patient is Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Toward the beginning of that work, Jim Hawkins is caring for the elderly Billy Bones after the man had a stroke. Caroline begins her ordeal in the same way, taking care of the elderly Ben Devereaux post-stroke. So, hmm, some there themes there. Yeah. Uh, according to Josh Weiss for Sci-Fi, the skeleton key was shot on location in Louisiana at the insistence of its director. I made several trips to New Orleans and decided that it was such an important environment and location for the film's story. Uh, and this was what Softly explained. I wanted to shoot as much as possible there for creative reasons. I wanted all of us to be immersed in that world that wasn't our initial sense, unquote. Uh, the studio wanted the main bulk of the production to take place in Los Angeles, but softly convinced them to reconsider during a hiatus caused by Hudson's first pregnancy. I think the film benefited not just from the location, but from myself and the crew and the heads of the department 
really familiarizing themselves and making contact with a lot of advisors in the city that enabled us to bring authenticity to it. Weiss continues, while working closely with the production designer John Beard, costume designer Louise Frogley, and cinematographer Dan Mindell softly aimed to make New Orleans and Louisiana at large feel like another character in the film. He cites the photography of William Eggleston and Nina Golden as major influences on its aesthetic. The cornerstone of the entire shoots turned out to be a real-world plantation house, which was originally inaccessible to the filmmakers due to some sort of feud within the family that owned it. The landowners ultimately relented, allowing the movie to serve as a proverbial olive branch between the fighting family members, unquote. So that was the Felicity uh, plantation house wow yeah and so um i thought that was kind of nice that the family finally got along because this movie was being made there so um yeah that's cool probably because of the money they got (laughs) right yes (laughs) they probably got a good chunk of change and that solved all of the family problems (laughs) yes yes Hmm, uh which sometimes you know money does matter (laughs) yes it's true (laughs) Uh, so according to the wiki- Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, The Skeleton Key was released in the U.S. on August 12th, 2005, after having received an earlier release date of July 29th, 2005 in the United Kingdom. It grossed $92 million worldwide, and this was on a budget of $43 million, so it did pretty well for itself. Uh, But it did receive mediocre reviews when it was released. Roger Ebert's review wrote, The Skeleton Key is one of those movies that explains too much while it is explaining too little, and leaves us with a surprise at the end that makes more sense the less we think about it. But the movie's mastery of technique makes up for a lot. Unquote. Uh, Manola I think it's Dargis of Mm. the New York Times criticized the film for its plot, describing it as enjoyably inane. (laughs) Oh. And also noted that the film indulges in almost every conceivable conceivable regional and southern gothic genre cliche, unquote. And according to blackhorrormovies.com, quote, ever since The Sixth Sense, thriller twists have become increasingly pointless, but in The Skeleton Key, it actually works quite well and might actually be a bit funny, depending on your point of view and political affiliation, unquote. Hmm. All right, so let's get into our discussion of the film. Uh, let's start with a brief history of hoodoo and voodoo. Mm-hmm. Mm. It makes me really sad to say that I didn't know too much about hoodoo or voodoo until we started doing research for this film. Um, I'd seen documentaries and other movies that discuss the practice, but it was mostly from a white, superstitious, uneducated viewpoint. I mean, yeah, same. I really only know what I know from movies, which is all probably very wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, I found a really good dissertation, actually, um, from a student named Megan Lane. Uh, She wrote this on Hoodoo, um, and it was very informative. So shout out to Megan for the incredible paper. Um, Lane writes that Quote, it was, in fact, upon watching The Skeleton Key as an undergraduate that I was motivated to explore the practice of hoodoo in America further. I found it appalling that even in the year 2005, filmmakers were still using the traditions and practices of African Americans as fodder for horror films. Hoodooists in this film are reduced to representing ghostly body snatchers. This was also my introduction to hoodoo and... Um, I have to say, a lot of these stereotypes stuck with me throughout the years, so I really wanted to do some digging um, just in order to better understand the culture, as we should. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Lane goes on to write in their paper that in understanding hoodoo conjure, it is vital to differentiate it from voodoo, a term that is an American corruption of the word voodoo, uh, spelled V-O-D-O-U which identifies a traditional West African religion. Hoodoo conjure is distinct from voodoo in that it is a religious system of beliefs that manifests itself in the manipulation of spiritual forces to do one's bidding, both malevolent and 
benevolent in the physical world. Voodoo, on the other hand, is a religion that worships a superior creator god as well as a pantheon of deities through veneration and respect, as many of the established world religions do. It is usually the stigmatized conception of evil hoodoo that people are referring to when they identify voodoo. Hmm. Hoodoo conjure, in reality, is an intricate system of magic, herbalism, divination, and witchcraft that often erroneously dismissed as simple sorcery and fortune-telling. This misunderstanding of hoodoo conjure in the United States has been facilitated and in most cases even caused by the portrayal of African religious traditions in media. The modern conception of voodoo is one facilitated by pop culture, in particular the influence of nearly 100 years of American film. The average American's knowledge of the voodoo religion is restricted to the notion of witch doctors, zombies, and of course, the voodoo doll. That's a really, really good dissertation. If anybody is interested in this stuff, um, they did a really great job writing that. Yeah, and like always, if you're ever interested in reading any of the articles that we've referenced in our show, just uh, email us at goodmorningnancy at gmail.com, and uh, I would be very happy to send you links to all of our resources. Yes, for sure. So kind of in the same vein, um, in her book, Hoodoo Voodoo, Root Work, Conjure, and Folk Magic, Marisa Fair says, Hoodoo is the craft the practice where voodoo is the mindset and monarchy Mm. since the 19th century these forms have coalesced into one overarching form but the differentiation is still important enough to absorb new orleans voodoo is a cultural strand of the afro-american religions rooted in west african dalmayan voodoo i hope i pronounced that right um voodoo is a result of this african diaspora most specifically as a result of the slave trade, West African Damayan Vudun was fused with Catholicism and Francophone beliefs in the South. Voodoo especially developed along the Mississippi in the South, mostly in larger towns of um, Louisiana and Mississippi. And of course, with its largest influence falling in the town of New Orleans. An amalgamation of French, Creole, and Spanish influence, this melting pot of religious fusions, is what brought us voodoo dolls. I think it's pronounced Gris Gris, mm-hmm. Mojo Bags, and so on. Interesting. Yes. So this is an extremely brief and not as detailed. Um, it's just like a brief overview. It's sure. really not as detailed as I'd like it to be, but I really encourage anyone who is interested to look into these practices because they are an important part of our country's history and they should be as respected as other beliefs, in my opinion. Um, There are great documentaries and personal accounts out there made by actual practitioners, so definitely seek those out for more information. Like, don't rely on this film to educate you. <laughs> Please. <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately, like you mentioned, like oh, movies, like media, horror movies, and just like white people in general have mm-hmm. really <laughs> demonized or really colonized a lot of the religions and beliefs that are from black people. Mm-hmm. And there's a great book out now called The Black Guy Dies First, Black Horror Cinema from Fodder to Oscar by Robin R. Means Coleman, a PhD, and Mark H. Harris. In their chapter on religion in Black Horror Cinema, they say, quote, Religion has long been a driving force within Black populations in the New World, from ancient African beliefs that slaves melded with Christianity to form an array of religions throughout the Americas to Black Christian Church of the United States. Faith has played a large, at times, outsized role in Black people's ability to persevere, organize, and overcome unimaginable oppression, unquote. Coleman and Harris also mentioned how one of the first books to introduce hoodoo and voodoo to the Western world was William Seabrook's 1929 travelogue, The Magic Island. And it is a load of horseshit, (laughs) y'all. So Coleman and Harris write, Seabrook's book used both 
these repulsive sediments and fictive stories to advance the notion of a monstrous blackness that would serve as the foundation for depictions of voodoo and horror cinema for decades to come. Exhibit A was his claim to have witnessed genuine savage voodoo rituals, leaping, screaming, writhing black bodies, blood-maddened, sex-maddened, god-maddened, drunken world and dance their dark Saturnalia heads thrown weirdly back as if their necks were broken, white teeth and eyeballs gleaming, unquote. Uh, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty terrible. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, Coleman and Harris continue, although Seabrook wasn't responsible for injecting voodoo into the medium of film, we can still see Seabrook's crudely racist, fetishized primitive primitivism in so much representations of blacks in the horror genre. So Coleman and Harris use black moon i walked with a zombie cry of the bewitched uh the house on skull mountain predator 2 ritual and spell as some examples of this terrible <laughs> terrible uh representation of uh black people <laughs> yeah using voodoo and hoodoo in, in horror films yeah I think that this kind of uh, blends into our next topic really well, uh, racism, possession, and body horror, and all of that kind of mixed together, really. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Ian Softly said in an interview for Sci-Fi that the story had roots of that idea of the horrific brutality of the white plantation owners in lynching their servants. What happens in the film is that by their own hand, revenge is acted on them, softly says, of the film's weighty subject. Um, in a way, it's a story where justice prevailed. I know we touched on the subject of slavery and the awful conditions enslaved Black folks endured in our episode on Beloved, but just to remind y'all, uh, Black people in America were tortured ceaselessly by their white captors. A lot of you may know the story of Madame Lalaurie, who, according oh, yeah. to hearsay... Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, that is... Talk about an American horror story. I mean, I guess she was in the show American Horror Story, so that makes sense. She was, yeah. Oh, God. I I remember watching that and wanting to vomit everywhere. Um, yeah. That was rough. Um, so, according to hearsay... This <sighs> terrible, terrible, evil woman uh, tortured her slaves to death. Um, this hasn't been confirmed through historical proof, but I mean, it's safe to say that this probably happened because white people are white people. <laughs> and this type of methodical torture, though psychotic, was pretty commonplace. Um yeah, it's, I don't see any reason to not believe in it somewhat, you know, because why would it, why would the rumor exist if, like, you know, it's not like... 100%. It, you know what I mean? It's like, that is such a, like, a, a wild thing to say that it's like, why wouldn't it be true? Of course it would be. Yeah, I think that kind of comes from uh, not wanting to be uncomfortable with history, and sure. like not wanting to acknowledge things that actually did happen to correct actual real people who were alive. Um, right. <laughs> so another issue I want to bring to attention here is that the uh, father of gynecology, James Marion Sims, only knew about anatomy because he needlessly tortured black women in horrific experiments mm -hmm. and he literally thought that people of color were incapable of feeling pain um oh, so sad his two main subjects named betsy and anarka um they were literally like bought by him for the purpose of being used in his experiments and they lived through immeasurable pain like mm. This motherfucker was treating white women with anesthesia, so really, he had no good reason for not using it in his experiments, except 
that he was a racist piece of shit. And right. part of me thinks that he was a misogynist who got off on torturing these women. Um, oh. Because there really weren't any known risks associated with using anesthesia for mm -hmm. medical procedures at that time. Like, it had already been proven that, like, they were good to go and it was safe to use. So, mm -hmm. um, absolutely fucking infuriating. And I hate it. So, <laughs> along with these... <laughs> Along with these instances, we have the outright horrors of slavery and that enslaved folk were wanted literally only for their bodies. Like, there's no way around it because people of color had no quote-unquote value to these, like, white plantation owners other than their labor. So body horror and the history of slavery are really intrinsically linked because of this. Right, and yeah. I would even go so far as to say that these stories could be the origin of many American horror tales because, <laughs> like, when you cause that much pain to other human beings, there are bound to be vengeful spirits that live among the foundations of our country and, like, mm -hmm. within the structures that exist. And in this film, I think we see this portrayed pretty brilliantly, even though there are some obviously problematic themes within it which we'll discuss but i mean a lot of us love a good revenge film you know what i mean like yeah this film 100 <laughs> yeah yeah i mean coleman and harris discuss this a bit themselves in the black guy dies first um they call it the racial grudge which i thought was Ooh. really interesting um so according to coleman and harris Aside from straightforward revenge against racist villains, there's another type of racial retribution that's less direct but more insidious. This vengeance is born out of racism, but the people who feel the brunt of that backlash aren't the ones who perpetrated the racial wrongings, the racial wrongs. Rather, it's more a case of racism triggering a curse that mows down everyone in its path, a racial grudge, if you will. These tend to be supernatural tales like the Candyman films, which include both black and white victims. Likewise, The Skeleton Key and Jezebel feature spirits of wronged black murder victims from decades ago haunting modern residents of their property. Uh, Coleman and Harris continue to say, slavery is a natural spark for the curse in racial grudge movies. Mm. Um, and I have also seen some discussions that by having Mama Cecile and Papa Justifies Black Bodies lynched on screen is a bit traumatic, even for a horror film. And yeah. Coleman and Harris touch on this a bit as well. And they say, quote, Wading too deep into the ugliness of racial violence, however, runs the risk of a film being branded as trauma porn that exploits real-life racial trauma for profit, an accusation that mushroomed as caught-on-video incidents of police brutality against Black people proliferated in the 2010s. Applying this la label to horror, however, can be tricky. Can be a tricky balancing act, since the genre, by definition, is meant to horrify. Do some horror movies seem to go over the top with their depictions of violence against Black people without adequate justification? Sure. Does that mean movies should never show realistic violence against Black people? Of course not. In practice, the reaction to material that could potentially be deemed trauma porn is typically dictated simply by how good the movie is. By and large, acclaimed movies with the sort of script, cast, director, and viewpoint that resonates with viewers are given more slack when productions that play like ham-fisted snuff films. Whether tagged trauma porn or not, though, racial reckoning cinema rides the slippery slope that many black movies, regardless of genre, find themselves navigating. Victimization. That is, black characters tend to be defined by victimhood rather than existing as fully-fledged human beings who do more with their lives than simply reacting to oppression. Unquote. Mm. 
Yeah. So are the black spirits in the skeleton key justified in their actions? <laughs> I say hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Coleman and Harris agree. Uh, they say in their book that they at least have a moral foundation for their vengeance and they aren't just like shitty people seeking eternal life for no reason. Right. And I also want to talk about a great essay by Camila L. Martin, who wrote Caroline's Nightmare, The Skeleton Key as Visual Echo of Charles Chestnut's Conjure Tales. So Martin discusses how Chestnut, a black man, wrote a series of short stories published in 1899, including a tale about an enslaved woman named Aunt Peggy, who uses her knowledge of hoodoo to make her enslaver switch bodies with a black man. And there is a very clear commonality here between this and the skeleton key, which is pretty yeah. neat. Uh, Martin says, Chestnut was a master of his craft, and much of the conjure woman's critical discourse centers on how well he manipulates the genre of this era to initiate a new awareness and dialogue about race. The filmmakers for The Skeleton Key appear to be keenly in tune with the conventions of their genre, but also with those employed by Chestnut and his predecessors for the purpose of subverting the status quo. Richard Broadhead surmises that Chestnut's fables describe the asymmetrical power struggles of antebellum blacks against slavery. They describe the similar asymmetrical struggles of post-war blacks against New South economic history. Uh, Aaron Kruger, who wrote The Skeleton Key, likewise centers his storyline around the oppressed group, the Thorpe servants who rely on wit and trickery to bring trouble to the Thorpes in ways that constantly undermined the Thorpes' efforts to impose on them a value system that they had no reason to accept. Congruent with the conjured tales in the film, the former white masters and their blacks, servants, are the contending parties here, and the servants' art of kunja forms the heart of the struggle between them, though the viewing audience is initially unaware. The similarities between the conjure woman and the skeleton key are most discernible when considering the story Mars Jeem's Nightmare, the third story of Chestnut's collection. The motion picture incorporates elements of conjure and hoodoo, a master raconteur, and relies on the type of passing for the climactic plot twist, just as in Chestnut's short story. So, Martin discusses how the absence of Black characters in The Skeleton Key works well as a ruse and might make the audience think twice about what is or isn't missing from the film. But it's also a bit problematic, but I think Martin thinks that that's intentional and that it mm. works really well. Which brings us to our next topic, erasing Black people from film. Mm-hmm. Martin says, there is also a secondary conjure woman referred to in the visual text, similar to Chestnut's introduction of Tenny in the story of Poe Sandy. Mama Cynthia, who is played by actress Maxine Barnett, is the conjure woman who runs a hoodoo shop in Algiers just across the river from the French Quarter. Neither she nor Mama Cecile has substantial time on screen or significant dialogue, Mama Cynthia having considerably less time than Mama Cecile. Where the viewer does not see the image of the conjure woman in Softly's film, the representations seem questionable. Mama Cynthia too easily acquiesces into the Mammy archetype. She is large, dark-skinned woman wearing a brightly colored polka dot handkerchief on her head. She wears gold teeth, perhaps to give the image a perhaps to give the image a 21st century flair and a mismatched muumuu of purple and gold. Around her neck, she wears a large ornate beaded necklace coupled with a second necklace made of coondongs or raccoon penis bones. She even hums an old Negro spiritual-esque melody as she prepares the conjure package for her new client, Caroline. 
As such, she communicates a style of buffoonery, reminiscent of the early silent Hollywood cinema. She is presented in a manner wholly consistent with accepted racial stereotypes of times past, which begs the question of directorial intent. Martin continues, saying... The stereotype of the mammy and the and the refuse of her refuses her any real credibility and by association disrepute the hoodoo tradition as a viable threat to whiteness. Mama Cecile, on the other hand, does not appear in the 21st century at all. Her image is offered to viewers as a photograph, a ghostly reflection in the mirror in a flashback sequence where she is convulsing under the auspices of the conjure of sacrifice and finally as strange fruit hanging from the live oak tree i think it is also important to note that she is always pictured wearing servants attire the white characters in the film and perhaps even white onlookers in the audience are reassured of their racial class and gender status through the body of the black female comfortably placed in a role of servitude. There is no question about what role she plays in the Thorpe household, though this belies her identity outside of the Thorpe's dominion. I read this as another ruse by Kruger to meet the expectations of a predictable audience only to disrupt them later in the film. Mama Cecile is presented as non-threatening and servile in her few moments on screen. This, coupled with the problematic characterization of Mama Cynthia, leaves the viewing audience likely unsuspecting of black women who conjure, an attitude that seems essentially essential to the success of the plot twist. Other than in these sparse images, however, the physical black female body of the conjure woman is absent from the film that so inherently relies on her presence. The absence of the black female presence in the skeleton key signifies the trickery often embedded in African-American resistance rather than validating the perceived supremacy of white womanhood womanhood as a two-headed figure mama cecile emerges as the accomplished trickster leading caroline down a predetermined path upon viewing the film with the mostly white cast it is easy to assume that the flick is yet another cinematic narrative that reinforces the prominence of the eurocentric western perspective that the few token black characters have little bearing on the lives and development of their white counterparts kruger and softly's trick ensures that viewers will acknowledge how the ignorable black presence is really at the helm of the ship steering and maneuvering at every turn they negate the privileging of white male perspective and voice by displacing the Africanist presence, black bodies, though the film itself is full of signifiers of black presence and culture, hoodoo, and hinges on the experience of black servants. Not only does Kruger pull from the conjure and folktale traditions of the American South, but he also weaves an unconventional passing narrative. Martin continues again. Mama Cecile and Papa Justify understand the injustice, prejudice, and maltreatment visited upon the black body and opt to undermine the status quo with their conjuration of sacrifice. The trick grants immediate and lasting protection for Mama Cecile and Papa Justify from the social ills of their southern, segregated 1920s environment. By throwing off her black skin, Softly and Kruger empower Mama Cecile to reject the white Christian patriarchal oppression of the Thorpe family, effectively using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, by first assuming the life of young Grace Thorpe, then as Violet Devereaux, and finally as Caroline Alice. Mama Cecile finds shelter from Jim Crow, the Ku Klux Klan, and quite literally the lynch mob that destroys the body in which she came into this world. As a white woman, she lives a peaceful life of relative seclusion, living off the land and vegetation of the Thorpe estate, unfettered by the racial tensions and social turmoil of the 20th and 21st centuries. There seems no safer space for Mama Cecile than a white woman's body. 
Mama Cecile essentially passes for white in the most exceptional way, yet the advantages and logic for doing so echo those of other people of color, both fictional and real, who choose to wear the mask of whiteness. To be clear, I am invoking the term passing as it is used and understood within black imagination, rather than relying on the trope of the tragic mulatto. An ideal, an an ideal of the black experience constructed by and for white consumption. Mama Cecile is engaged in the type of passing or masking that is privileged in the African-American literary tradition, as exemplified in Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, We Wear the Mask, or Nella Larson's fiction. As explained by Brian Redfield, a character from Larson's classic novel Passing, from 1929, passing for white is a natural instinct of the race to survive and expand. To conclude, Martin says, while Hobson argues that those of us who study film and wish to incorporate black feminist analysis still confront the cinematic construction of black female bodies as stereotyped, marginalized, or invisible. I submit that Kruger and Softly offer a small modicum of relief by subverting the norm with the incredible plot twist of The Skeleton Key. Mama Cecile's disembodied presence is intentional and strategic in the film's narrative, a conjure tale of the highest order. The audience is made to believe that the black servants are only peripheral to what occurs to the Thorpe home, when truly the entire story revolves around their resistance to racial oppression by use of syncretized African traditions. The Skeleton Key paints a vivid and memorable picture of how conjure and hoodoo have been used as a defense mechanism and means of escaping persecution for people of African descent. Rather than submitting to the default design of other Hollywood films that delve into African spiritual traditions and politely reinstate the status quo, which maintains that black conjurers are never the victor, Softly's film does not rescue Caroline, the white female protagonist, and punish the black interlopers of white bodies. Caroline falls victim to Mama Cecile's conjure of sacrifice and will live the rest of her limited days in the defeated body of Violet Devereaux. Mama Cecile awakens in Caroline's young taut body, ready to defy mortality, uh, for another lifetime. Yet it is Chestnut's spirit that is so heavily invoked in this film. The film speaks to two different audiences and gives rise to the questions of racial equality and social behaviors with the mastery that is Chestnut's alone. Kruger's mirroring of the narrative structure and literary devices employed in The Conjure Woman revives Chestnut's literary efforts in a new medium. Though not directly associated with Chestnut, for the audience who knows his work intimately, the skeleton key serves as a visual resonance in which we can hear the voices of our literary past roaring into the future, unquote. Hmm. So, I know that that was a lot to take in, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> And I highly encourage everyone to check out Camila Martin's full essay because it is absolutely incredible and probably the best piece of scholarly literature about the skeleton key that I could find. <laughs> and it's by a black woman and I love it. Yes. Um, and um, I think for what it's worth, if Mama Cecile and Papa Justify hadn't quote unquote won in the end, I think this film would not have been accepted as much as it has been by folks of all races. Now, that doesn't mean there still aren't some issues with the story. Obviously, Martin points those out. But I think that I, I think that the story, even though it's written and directed by white men and has a mostly white cast, I think from what I'm gathering, it's pretty well accepted <laughs> hmm. um, because it has a lot to say about like race and about generational trauma. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that uh, I think it's well liked by a lot of people. Like I said, that doesn't mean there aren't issues with it. Um, and it does get compared to get out quite often, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, especially since Get Out 
is kind of considered the more superior film because it is helmed by black creators. Right. Well, one thing that I really enjoyed about Get Out was the fact that black people were seen and played a pivotal role in the film. Right. Um, with this film, I don't know. I try really hard to tell myself that this was a movie from 2005 and <laughs> yeah. white people weren't privy really to the cultural changes that really needed to take place when discussing racism. Um, we've always been this way and <laughs> it's incredibly unfair to people of color because we weren't doing as much as we should. But that being said, this film does what a lot of movies weren't doing back then. And that's talking about the history of black people in areas like Louisiana while acknowledging how terrible conditions were for enslaved people. And then later, you know, people who worked in service industries um, and were trying to make their way after the civil war. I mean, off the top of my head, I think interview with a vampire, um, which portrays enslaved people, use practicing voodoo while like their white captor hides away in his home as a vampire <laughs> was like really the only uh, I, I guess one of the only like horror movies that were portraying this at that time so i mean that movie doesn't even show the true conditions they were living in nor does it explain why they practiced uh voodoo but or what its purpose was but you know it was just like kind of thrown in there <laughs> right so. and was it even was it even an accurate depiction of voodoo i mean i don't i don't know there's that to consider too no actually that depiction sounds like what that racist old white dude wrote in his book um, right that we mentioned earlier so like ugh. right and that is kind of seen in the skeleton key as well you do see Mama Cecile and Papa Justify acting in that way that Seabrook described. Um, right. And then you have to wonder, who 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 is visualizing this? Is it Caroline's visualization of what's going on? Right. Is she visualizing, like, that's what she sees because that's what she knows from media? Mm -hmm. Or um, is that what the crowd of... Uh, of the white people that lynch uh cecile and justify is that what they think they see right so yeah it's uh it's pretty despicable actually so yeah something to consider definitely you see it all through the white lens which <laughs> yeah so however as great as it is that the story ends up you know being this story about vengeance on the part of you know the the black servants in this plantation home, it doesn't really give them the spotlight in a way that makes them visible to us. And right. it kind of reminds me of the Disney version of The Princess and the Frog and how Tiana spends a majority of that film in the form of an amphibian. <laughs> so, like, yeah. she barely gets any screen time. Right. <laughs> That is actually a huge issue. According to Andrew Tejada, in 2009, the House of Mouse, the House of Mouse announced that an African-American woman named Tiana would star in a princess film. After waiting for nearly 20 years, I was finally going to see a black person take the lead in a major studio cartoon on the big screen. And then they turned her into a frog. <laughs> Ugh. A slimy kiss turns Tiana into a frog around 30 minutes into the movie. She hops around for almost an hour before she fully turns back into a human again. When you consider that the movie runs 138 minutes, including credits, and that it cuts away to several side plots, this means audiences spend less than half an hour with Tiana appearing as a black woman. Trahada continues... When diverse characters lose their identities, the audience loses opportunities to absorb valuable lessons and insights, unquote. Yep. Yep. The, yeah. So The Princess and the Frog isn't the only animated film with this problem. Uh, Spies in Disguise by Blue Sky turns Will Smith's character into a pigeon. 
And mm. Pixar's soul turns Jamie Foxx's character into a white soul, quote unquote, and then into what? a cat. Yes. <laughs> and then into a cat. Jesus Christ. While Tina Fey's character in that film does a weird yikes moment where her character, a soul named 22, possesses, inhabits the body of a black man. Whoa! Yeah. So according to Saida Shabazz, quote, Faye's performance as 22 in Soul is akin to blackface in that they're using her voice in a black body. Of course, the creative team likely didn't see it that way. But that's exactly what it feels like. Unquote. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So now this doesn't happen with the skeleton key. It's like reversed, right? But it does feel rather strange seeing these black souls in white bodies. And as Grant Watson puts it, quote, someone in Hollywood figured out how to tell a black story without any black people in it, unquote. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really the big issue that I have with this film. Like, it feels like white people trying to tell black stories, which, as we know, is a very Karen thing to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I loved Obama. I would have voted for him for a third term. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, I know that the goal of sort of hiding Cecile and Justify in white bodies was just that, like to hide a secret. But mm. like a different face on the same coin, it feels like they would rather be white than black, mm. even though Cecile you know, initially has a negative reaction to Caroline's whiteness. Right. I know that there are a lot of trivialities to this storyline. And of course they have to take what they can get as far as getting new bodies. But like how different would the story be if a majority of the characters actually were black? Like I really started questioning this line of thinking as I watched it this time. And, you know, it's, uh, mm, it's it's sort of a catch-22 because, you know, I want to hear what Black people think of this movie, and I want to know if they feel like... I just want to hear their ideas. <laughs> well, I, I'm really interested to hear what Black horror fans think of The Skeleton Key as well, because from what I'm gathering from the very little evidence and scholarly articles that I could find online, because... From my knowledge, no one talks about this film, which is kind of bizarre to me. But yeah. a lot of Black horror film fans and scholars seem to really enjoy this movie, even though there aren't a lot of Black people shown or even speaking in it. But as far as I could find, like like I said, there's not a lot of talk about this film online. And a lot of the white people, like us, who are discussing this film, they all pretty much find it problematic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like... Are our issues with the film justified? Like, do we as white women, are our issues with this film, do they matter? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Does anyone really care what we think? And <laughs> the answer is probably not. And that's valid. Yeah. Um, and like I said, like like we both said, I we really want to hear what black horror fans think of this film. And if anyone out there wants to contact us, please message us on our Instagram or email us. And we'll read your response in the next episode because um, there, we like to do the show. We like to, when we do the show, we like to get as much uh, a scholarly uh, articles and interests out there as much as we can. Mm -hmm. um, and either we don't have access to it or it's not, doesn't exist. And I would really like to hear what black horror fans and, Black film scholars think of this film. For sure. So let's move on to our next topic, Sweet Caroline. Oh boy. So this, I really wanted to write a scathing section about Caroline. Yeah. <laughs> and I wrote my thoughts down and erased them. And then I wrote them again. And then I erased them again. So, um... Yes, let's talk about Caroline. Okay. <laughs> she is the perfect victim 
And I say this because she's what we typically think of when we hear stories of like disappearances or murder Mm -hmm. because she is a blonde white woman in her mid twenties and she's single and she works really hard. And, you know, the great irony in this film is that Cecile, like I mentioned earlier, is upset at first by the thought of inhabiting her body. Like, She's mad that Luke, who is actually Justify, has, you know, found her a white girl from New Jersey, which is kind of strange, too, because Justify doesn't seem to have an issue with Luke's body that we really hear of. Um, Mm. There's definitely some weird underlying themes at play here, Um, at least I think. But ultimately, you know, Caroline disappears quote unquote and winds up in the body of a geriatric white woman who will soon pass away and she can't speak for herself or do anything to help herself because that's what happens to the elderly that's like a very sad reality of many many people in our country so she caroline ends up falling victim to the very thing that she's trying to escape and it's really heart-wrenching to watch uh yeah it's very upsetting kind of i mean like you could argue that caroline was appropriating hoodoo for her own benefit yes yes her intentions were innocent don't get me wrong like she is i think a good person but she appropriated a religion that wasn't hers (laughs) yeah she was ignorant she was very ignorant to it um and was she trying to help ben yeah absolutely she was um but she was doing it, I think, in the wrong way. Like, is she helping people because she really wants to help them or because she feels guilty because she didn't help her own dad? Yeah, yeah. Like, Caroline is a complicated character, which is good. Right. You know, we don't want her to be this angel, you know? Right. And I think she holds a lot of guilt, and I think it also clouds her decision-making and her true intentions. Right. What I find uh, equally horrifying and humorous about this plot line is that, you know, Caroline says she wants to, uh, like, go help people and really make a difference instead of just being present to, like, usher elderly people to the other side in an industry where everyone just kind of feels like a number. And (laughs) she definitely gets her wish because... She sacrifices herself and, like, her own body, albeit unwillingly, for Cecile to continue living. Yeah. I mean, she's kind of unintentionally a white savior. Whoops. (laughs) Yup. Which is what I initially wrote, but I was like, ah! Like, I don't know how to, like, state this without sounding like a complete dingus, but, like... Well, yeah. I mean, like, she, um, again, because this is written by white men um mm-hmm. i i really don't know what their intention was with that i think they were just trying to write a scary story and yeah. i don't think they were yeah. trying to be anything else but that and i don't know there's a part of me that just feels like caroline just like i don't know i think it may be the way that kate hudson also plays her right but and i think that that's i think that it's intentional because she's a good actress um I think that she kind of played her as somebody who thinks she knows more than what she knows. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And she tries to fix problems that aren't hers. Yes. And she does it because she is so wrought with guilt for just like abandoning her dad, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's It's complicated. She's a complicated character. Well, her story is so tragic because she starts losing herself from the moment she steps into the Devereaux's home. Like, Mm. right up to the moment that she's brought out in Violet's body on the stretcher. And she is this realist, and she's very skeptic, but as she becomes enmeshed in the caregiving of Ben because of her guilt... um, she becomes so determined to find out what's wrong with him. Bits of her kind of begin to fall away. Almost like she's being reborn in a sure. way. Um, But the more layers of herself that she begins to shed in pursuit of the truth, 
the more susceptible she is to the magic that will eventually swallow her whole. So it's extremely distressing. Like she, she is just walking the plank and she does not even realize it. I mean, that could be a very, I mean, that could just be a representation of even us talking about this film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we know yeah. as, as white women talking about a film that is supposed to be about, um, the black experience, um, or even just the white guys who wrote and directed this film. It's like, right. we're walking this plank trying to tell the story or talk about the story and we don't know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> You know, right, right, exactly. And like, but like, it's also like poetic justice for her to become this old lady because, like I mentioned earlier, her intentions to help others are probably because of guilt, not really because she wants to help people. Mm-hmm. And um, now she's living as a geriatric person, and hopefully, she gets the decent care that she needs by someone who is actually kind. Um, because we know that that is <laughs> really a scary thing to deal with. Um, you get lots of ableism and ageism and, um, yeah. Yeah. It's scary sure. being old. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of look at this as like, I think that Martin did a great job talking about it in her essay, um, that, uh, the, the power and the trickery of these amazing and powerful black women who are using their religion, their magic, to trick the stupid white girl. You know? It's just like, you're an idiot. You should (laughs) you (laughs) took advantage of you thought that that Cecile was just this was just this servant, you know? And you thought that Cynthia was just this woman selling whatever at the shop like you didn't she didn't take any of that seriously right and i think martin really explains that in a really interesting way helped me look at the film a bit differently that maybe it's like maybe you should stop be such a stop being such an ignorant white person and that's like kind of how we feel you know about talking about this film right there is a strong chance that we're going to sound super ignorant talking about it which is why we want to hear what black horror fans think of this film. Yes, it's true. We have to open ourselves up as idiots in order to be educated. <laughs> well, like Caroline says, I'm, what did she say? I'm, I'm open to anything or I try to keep an open mind. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> I just try to keep an open mind, but like, I don't really want to discuss politics. I right. stay away from politics. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting film that makes us feel a lot of feelings. And it does. <laughs> it does. It's a complicated emotion. It is. Um <laughs> so let's get into our final thought. Yeah. Is this movie good or is it a problem? Can it be both? Let me begin by saying it feels like there is no right answer to this question or wrong answer really. Um but I will say this movie has made me think really hard so truly any film that makes that kind of moves you in such a way has to be at the very least pretty good right (laughs) like absolutely yeah it has most definitely made me question where i stand as a white person who is ignorant to the experience of people of color um i'll never know what their everyday is like or grasp that particular generational trauma so I really am limited to my own experiences. Um, but I'm like you mentioned earlier, Gracie, Aaron Kruger noted that all ghost stories really are about a crime in the past that is unavenged and deserves retribution. retribution. And according to Curtis Harding for Looper, who is, yes, a white man, <laughs> He says, yes, Cecile and Justify had really jumped bodies before a white mob lynched their bodies, but they still had to watch it happen. And when Violet tells their tale, she makes clear that the man they worked for was cruel. The lynching was just the culmination of his treatment of them. Violet says that in life, Cecile and Justify healed the sick and hurt the mean, but they were abused and worked to the bone by a vicious employer. 
They didn't start out bad, and what they've done to stay alive by taking over the bodies of white Southern folks can certainly be looked at as a retribution against a racist, abusive culture. Lashing out may be a bit too much to hurt the mean, but that only goes so far. When Cecile is in Caroline's body, she says she's tired of being a white woman, but they can never get any black folk to stick around long enough, so it's clearly moved beyond retribution into cruelty, which, uh, whoo-wee-woo, okay. Yeah, and I think I need to mention, again, that the only people that I've seen, online at least, because again, there's not much about this film, the only people that I have seen who think this movie is villainizes black people are white people. <laughs> like this Curtis Harding guy, you know, it's like, I don't know. Like I said, I really only want to hear what black people think about this film. Honestly, yeah. that is where I stand. <laughs> right. And I mean, maybe that's where we should end this because we possibly said too much anyway. Yeah. <laughs> And um, now it's time to hear from the people whose opinions really matter when it comes to this topic. So please message us and let us know what you think of the skeleton key. We really, really want to hear from you. Yeah, because there's not enough discourse on this film by the people whose opinions, like you said, Abby, really matter. So, we Oh, you love... mean the people who are central to the entire film? <laughs> you were correct. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I really, really want to hear what people have to say. So, like Abby said, please message us. Well, everyone, that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Thank you so much for listening. Our Patreon is back. If you have the means and appreciate our work, head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And honestly, even just $2 a month is extremely helpful to us both. I mean, it can pay for the cups of coffee that we need while we research and record and edit this show. Thank you so much. Yes. And as always, a free way to support the show is by following us on Instagram at goodmorningnancy. And truly, just reposting our content really helps others find our show. So also word of mouth, tell your friends, spread the word. Yes. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe out there. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.